0: 21st and 22nd chapter of Genesis is the basis of this sermon today. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to read all of those verses, but I'll trust you will. But it is the the story, or the account, the record of Abraham and his son, Isaac. And that is the Text really for a sermon on parenting or the home, what I want to get into here today. Patrick Henry was one of America's greatest statesmen. Somebody came up after the service, early service this morning, and told me that they were related to Patrick Henry. And uh, agreed with me from having read about his life, what I'm about to say. Patrick Henry pushed Virginia to military preparedness for the Revolutionary War with that ringing statement that we remember from childhood. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Of all the statements that Patrick Henry made, however, the one statement that had more eternal significance about it was a statement he made in explanation of how he wanted his estate to be uh, dispersed. And of that subject, of that matter, he said, I have now dispersed my possessions. There was one thing, however, I wish I could give, and that is to my family, I wish I could give, the Christian religion. For if I gave them that, and not one shilling more, they would be rich. But if they had not that, and I gave them the world, they would be poor. What would you like to leave your children? A large estate, uh, an inheritance, an established business, a noble name, or a godly heritage? According to Patrick Henry, there is nothing any more important that you can leave your children than a godly heritage. The 21st and 22nd chapters of the book of Genesis is about an ancient man who must have agreed with that. Because of all the things that he provided for his son, there is none any more significant, none as significant as the godly heritage he gave his son, Isaac. Now, it wasn't easy for him to become the father of Isaac. We're not really sure how long he waited for that son of the promise. We know that it was at least 25 years after they left Haran that Isaac was born. He may have waited for that son for as long as 60 years. It wasn't easy becoming the parent of a son, Isaac. And when that son came, it wasn't easy being a parent, as we all know because he faced the challenge of parenting. And yet, Isaac, yet Abraham gave us in parenting Isaac two of the most significant patterns for parenting that I can find anywhere in Scripture and that you and I ought to recapture in the home. The first is that he presented an identity The first gift he gave his son Isaac was a personal identity. And so we read in the 21st chapter of the book of Genesis, verse 4, that on the eighth day, Abraham circumcised his son according to the command of God. Now, we pass over that subject. We don't, you know, we're a little bit reticent to talk about that. You know, it's a little embarrassing to talk about that, and yet... Um, When we do pass over the subject of of circumcision, we, we miss one of the most insightful, significant experiences of parenting that Abraham gave us. For circumcision was a mark of the covenant. And in the book of Jubilees, which is a Jewish book that dates back to the second century before Christ, we read, Every child, not circumcised, belongs not to the children of the covenant, which the Lord made with Abraham, but to the children of destruction. Nor is there, moreover, any sign on him that he is the Lord. In that right, Abraham was saying, this is a mark of the covenant, Isaac. You're a child of the covenant. In other words, Abraham was saying, Isaac, this is who you are. You're you're an individual with importance and significance and value. You're a member of the covenant people of God, the forever family, the family of faith in which you can find love and acceptance and nurturing. He was helping Isaac understand his identity. There's no greater challenge than that for a parent, than to help his child understand who he is and in that understanding decide what he wants to do with his life. Elizabeth O'Connor in her book, The Eighth Day of Creation, says that when a parent, that if a parent helps his child to discover a strong sense of personal identity, it's the definitive parental gift, it is the one gift that gives him a right to call himself a parent. Now I know that this matter of uh, of, uh, identification, recognition is not an easy matter, but there are some conclusions I think that are obvious. The first is this, that that it is a a strong sense of who we are, our personal identity is essential in healthy living. And the absence of that is what Eric Erickson calls identity diffusion. Now I know that's a fancy term. What is identity diffusion? Well, there are several examples of it. One is negative identity. It's where a child wants to be what his parents or his immediate social peers do not want him to be. The hippie movement was a, is a perfect example of that of the 60s and the 70s, for these young people were rebelling against the image or the identity that their parents thought they ought to portray, and they wanted to be exactly the opposite of that. A second example of identity diffusion is this inordinate uh, concern about what other people think about us. This... Inordinate self-consciousness that makes us live our lives on the basis of what other people think about us. And then then there's sexual diffusion that leads to all kinds of sexual perversions. So that to understand who we are, a personal identity is essential to healthy living. Second uh, conclusion that's obvious is that the early years of a child's life are so essential in the development of that identity. Now don't fall into the trap of thinking that when a child is one year of age, all of the patterns of his life are congealed. That's not so. Identity is a process that goes on all through life, and there can be drastic changes in one's character in life at any point, any stage of his life, but those early years are so, so important. When the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. He's, he's saying that parenting is a lifelong process. And you can't wait until the child is a teenager to begin to exercise exercise parental responsibility. You can't wait till a crisis comes until you start exercising the responsibility of parent. That parenting must begin the day you bring that child home from the hospital. That's why we have these dedication services here when the child is just a baby. There's a third conclusion. It's this, that both the father and the mother are essential in the parenting process. Now we are witnessing what psychologists call the femination of American culture where the woman's influence upon the child is the predominant influence. For example, when a child is born, say a little boy is born, the first person who cares for him is a woman. And more than likely that child be taken to child care for many, many, many mothers are working now. And the child care workers predominantly are women. And when he starts to kindergarten, preschool, or when he goes to grade school, most of his teachers are women. And when he goes to college, strangely enough, the most important people to him are women. He's looking for a wife. Now I'm not up here to de-emphasize the value of a woman, God forbid, on Mother's Day, not me. As a matter of fact, we can all say with Abraham Lincoln, "My mother, I owe everything I am to my darling mother. What I am here to do is to re-emphasize the role of the father. Studies indicate that Fathers bring to child care a dimension that mothers cannot bring because fathers respond to the children in a different way. Those same studies indicate that fathers bring a special dimension to parenting that the mother can never bring to parenting and that children are best able to do two things. They're best able to handle unusual circumstances and relate to strangers, which are indications of a strong personal identity if the father has been involved in parenting in a special way. Some of you remember the Korean conflict. You're old enough to remember that. Something happened in the Korean conflict that was that we'd never really seen before. We had GIs who defected to North Korea. As a matter of fact, there were 21 prisoners of war who decided just to stay in North Korea when the war was over. It's interesting that 19 of those men indicated that they felt no acceptance or love from their fathers, 11 of them said their fathers died when they were young. Now, part of their problem, not all of their problem, but part of it was the absence of a strong father figure. And those social studies indicate that when you have a father who is dominantly involved in the parenting process, it precludes almost the possibility of that boy becoming homosexual. There is a fourth conclusion that is obvious, I think, and it's this. That it is in love and acceptance that the child discovers best who he is. Now that should be good news to single parents today, because it says that the one predominant thing that influences a child's understanding of who he is and what he's to be is the love and acceptance he finds from his parents. And that mother or that father who is a single parent can really you know, make up for the absence of that other of a spouse by that special kind of love he or she gives. Abraham did something that you and I need to recapture in the home, he presented an identity. Secondly, he provided an illustration. Now he not, only showed, he not only told Isaac who he was and helped him to see who he was to be, he showed him how to do that. He became an illustration of it. He became an example, a model of it. He was a model to Isaac in everything he did and everything he said, what Isaac was meant to be when God gave him birth. I wonder what our children are seeing of us. Now the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, Abraham confronts a dilemma. God comes to him and he says, I want you to take your son, the son you love, and sacrifice him. Now the dilemma was not only that God asked or commanded Abraham to sacrifice the son of his love, he told him to sacrifice the son of the promise and that it was through Isaac that the covenant of God was gonna be realized. It was a dilemma for him. But the scripture says that that Abraham rose early and he prepared the sacrifice. Now Isaac was old enough to know what was going on. In fact, he was old enough to carry the wood that was to be used on the sacrifice up the mountain. He was a fully grown young man. And he's getting, this sacrifice, he's getting the wood for this sacrifice and his father and, and Isaac early in the morning start up the mountain. Someone said that while they were going up the mountain, On one side, the ram was going up the mountain on the other side. When they got to the place of the sacrifice, Isaac turns to his father and says, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And he drew the knife and was about to plunge it into the heart of his son. And I can just imagine what was happening in his mind as he was watching his father do this. And you know the rest of the story. God stayed his hand. But in that illustration or that example, Isaac learned three profound things that he never forgot. One was this, that no thing in this life is to come before God. No love is to take his place. Secondly that sometimes the greatest treasures that we possess must be given to God in obedience to Him and never held back. And third, he learned in this example that God could be trusted to provide what God commanded. Now every parent needs to be that kind of example to give that kind of illustration in the home. There's an ancient proverb Israel had that said this, that that the father ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. Now I'm absolutely convinced that he was not saying that God curses the children because of the sin of the father. But what he is saying is true that a child, when he lives in a kind of an environment, in the environment in which he grows up and the examples and models that he sees profoundly influence his character. For a child learns first at home, not by instruction nor by indoctrination, he learns by illustration. What are your children seeing They live, they learn what they live. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If he he lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If he lives with fear, he learns to be apprehensive. If he lives with pity, he learns to be sorry for himself. If he lives with jealousy, he learns to feel guilty. If he lives with encouragement, he learns to be confident. If he lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. With acceptance, he learns to love. With honesty, he learns what truth is. If he lives with friendliness, he learns that the world is a nice place to live. Jerry Clower said, every child ought to be able to stand flat footed and say, My papa is a godly man. Now, I think there are three dimensions in which this illustration must be lived out. The first is in the home. A father cared for his son who had been dying, and he was sitting there at his by the bedside of his son. He had nurtured him all these months and watched his son die. He could stand it no longer and he began to weep. His son said, Dad, don't cry. For as soon as I get to heaven, I'm going straight up to Jesus and say, it's because of you that I'm here. A little boy was asked one day, why do you love God? He said, I don't know, I guess it just runs in the family. What do your children see in the home? A woman sat by a horse place, reading a book with a pleasant face, till a boy came with a boyish frown and pushed the book and said, put it down. Then the mother, slapping his curly head, said, foolish child, you go to bed. For more of Christ's way I must know to train you up in the way you should go. And the boy went to bed to cry and to renounce religion by and by. Another woman bent over a book with a smile of joy and an intent look till a child came and jogged her knee and said of the book, put it down, take me. And the mother sighed as she stroked his head of this book, I'll never get it read. But I'll try through loving to learn his will and his love into my child instill. And the boy went to bed without a sigh to love religion by and by. Would you listen to me carefully? Whether your child desires or denounces the Christian faith by and by, will be largely determined by what they see in the home. This illustration is to be practiced in the church. Now I know some people this morning that, that have, as the, has, have a very low priority on the church. I mean, it will not have any use for the church. Not you, of course, you're here, but, but, you know, it's a good place for the old folks to go to, you know, if they haven't got anything else to do, if it's too bad to go to the lake, or, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I know some folks who have placed a very low priority on the church. But I have never seen, I have never seen parents who are making any significant impact in the lives of their children spiritually who are not involved in a local church. And whether your child embraces or evades the Christian religion by and by will be largely determined by how involved you are in the church. And this illustration is to be lived out in the world. A family of 10 people Ten children in, in Canada were interviewed recently in a religious publication. Six of these children were missionaries. Four of them, the other four were involved in the local church to support missionaries. And they asked these children, what is different about your parents that, that everybody just turned out like they did? And unanimously they said, my parents lived what they said. I want to share this with you and then I'm out, and then I'm through. I think I may have told this story before, but I won't mention it again. It happened to me, so it's something I know about. When I was in the seminary, I was invited to preach a revival meeting in a little church in southeast Dallas. If you went from Dallas to Houston on that interstate, you'd pass right over where that little church used to be. Now it's highly industrialized. That was back when I was in the seminary in early 60's, so it's been a long time. And I was invited to go out there and preach this little ghetto church. At that time, the blacks were moving in, and the white people were fleeing to the urban sections of town. To, they didn't want to worship with them. It was a terrible time for us all, really. And I was preaching in this revival meeting, and before I went, the, w- the week before I went to preach there, I picked up a Dallas, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and I saw on the front page a picture of a mangled car and a picture of a young, beautiful girl. She was a high school student in DeSoto, Texas, and she and these two boys played hooky that day and went out in a sport car riding. It was the day it was when the State Fair of Texas was going on, and they went speeding down a highway south of Dallas and careened out of control, killed that girl. The boys weren't hurt, but the girl was killed. And that girl lived next door to that little church with her f- father, who was a, an atheist, an alcoholic, and her mother, a stepmother, was an alcoholic. In fact, the day we went, that night we went to see them, she'd been drinking all day and she never once looked at us. I remember like it was yesterday. She never looked up, never even acknowledged we were there. And he was sitting at the table, he was a welder, so we got there after he'd gotten off work. Between the time he got off work and the time the service was to start, and he he was eating English peas, cornbread, and fish sticks and he was drinking iced tea out of a big old tin can about this big, he was—he acted like he hadn't had a meal all day. He was cramming it in and woofing it in and he was cram a mouthful and he'd swallow it with a big gulp of tea and he was furious. He said, what kind of a God do you people have that would allow my daughter to be snuffed out in the prime of her life? He, he'd take another bite. He said, you come to talk to me about God? He said, I don't believe in a God who would do something like that. What kind of God is that? He'd take another bite. He said, well, my daughter's lying, a corpse, those boys, didn't even scratch, didn't even hurt. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to sue them for every penny they got. He said, I'm going to get every penny they got. It was obvious that we weren't going to have much response there. So we got up to leave. As I started out the door, he got me by the hand. I thought he was gonna break it. He had this powerful grip. He had all this anger and he had my hand like a, like a vice. He was clamping down. He looked me right in the eye and he said, you don't think, the old chin started quivering. He said, you don't think God blames me, do you? And I looked him right in the eye and said, yes, I do. Now I know that you and I cannot be responsible for the action of our children. And some of the best parents I know have the roughest time with their kids. And some of the best kids I know have some of the Worst parents I know. I know that it is not possible for you and I to be responsible for the lives of our children. But I believe this with every ounce of my being. That you and I have a responsibility to help our children into the covenant. And one day as parents, we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account to God for the fact that we have not shown our children what it means to be the covenant people. And one of these days, we'll stand before God accountable for the fact that we've had an Isaac who never heard from his father or his mother who he was and never saw it. The illustration of how to be that. In the service, early service, I said, I'm going to ask you to do the hardest thing you've ever done. Husband, father, I'm going to ask you to reach over and take your wife by the hand. If you're not already doing this, if you're not already leading your home to be a Christian home, involving prayer together, maybe you started and you've like so many of us have faltered and you start over again. I'm gonna ask, I said, I'm gonna ask you to do the hardest thing you've ever done, and it wasn't near this many people in this service early. I'm gonna ask you to come down and stand across this front here, front of this auditorium, as a committal that you'll begin to model and instruct your children or your grandchildren in the covenant of God. Must have been how many? Eight or ten? Came. I'm going to ask that same thing of you this morning. Just stand facing me. We'll have prayer of dedication. Maybe you're a single parent here. You just come because you're a single parent. You understand the invitation? I'm coming today to say, I'm going to begin or I'm going to begin again to be the parent I promised God I would be back then. I want to start a family altar. I want to at least start praying together at lunch. I want to bring my children up to understand what it means to be in the covenant. However you would verbalize that or express that. Now there may be some of you who need to come for other reasons. As you see these Christians coming, to commit their home to the Lord, it might encourage you to join the church, to give your life to Christ. Rededicate yourself to the Lord. After we've had prayer, you take her by the hand, and you come stand here. Join me in prayer. Father, I pray now that your holy and wonderful purpose might be accomplished for this service and for this church, for these homes. And we realize, Father, that no nation, no community will ever exceed the level of the commitment of godliness in the home. That the hope of this nation rests upon people who call themselves mother and dad and the children who live with them. Grant now, Father, your will in this invitation for i pray in jesus name now begin to come out of the balcony you start now to come you'll take a little longer for you to get here just get up right now and come take her by the hand and say i want us to go i want our home to be christian and you'll come from down here on the first word of the first part of the song stand with me now let's sing you come